you know, in large part due to the Enlightenment, I think that we're relatively ignorant of the reality of, of spiritual warfare around us in our culture today. In many cultures, you do not need to convince people that there are dark spiritual forces actively at work uh, and behind much of what goes on in everyday life. That's a very normal thing in many cultures around the world. But enlightened Westerners often come across as too smart for nonsense like that. We don't have time for those things. Westerners like to think that they've got it all figured out, that what they can observe is all there is, and that if we can't see it, then it must not matter that much. Now, if you're in this room, that probably doesn't describe you, but it's the cultural milieu that we swim in, and it affects us more than we think. Revelation 13 and 14 is a reminder that the consequences of spiritual warfare are all around us, and the stakes could not be higher. The battle is over the souls of people. Last week, we looked at Revelation chapter 12. We saw that the dragon, Satan, has been defeated, and he knows that his time is short, but he's allowed to make war on the saints. But why? Why is he making war on the saints? What is his end? What is his end game? What's his end goal? Is he just, just kind of angry and just wants to kind of let out some of his rage? What's the purpose for which he's making war? Revelation 13 and 14 exposes the motives of Satan and the tactics of Satan to accomplish his ends. So we're going to read Revelation 13, 1 through chapter 14, verse 5, and then I'm going to pray and then we will jump in. Here's what God's Word says. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads with ten diadems on its horns, and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for forty-two months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming His name and His dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. 
and it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both slave and free, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Let's pray. Oh God, please help us this morning. Help me as I teach Your Word. Fill me with Your Spirit now and work through a weak vessel like me to speak and to to build up your people. And I pray that you'd give us ears to hear. Let us hear what the Spirit has to say to the church this morning, God. And I pray for anybody here that doesn't know you, that if there's anybody who is right now uh, under the deception of the evil one who's following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, I pray that today would be the day of salvation of deliverance, and that you would put a new song in their mouth this morning, that they would be set free after being captured by the devil to do his will, because that's where every single one of us was at one point. If we are in Christ, if we are a Christian, if we're born again, it's because you have set us free. You've given us spiritual sight by your grace alone. So God, I pray that you would encourage your people this morning, that you would remind us that, Lord, you have ultimate victory over the dragon over the beasts, and I pray that you would use your word to build your saints up, to help us endure, to help us persevere until the day of your return. And pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So Satan's motives become evident in the first four verses of chapter 13. He wants to be worshipped. Like the dragon, the beast mimics God in appearance. He has ten horns and seven heads, symbolizing great authority and power. And the beast tries to give the appearance of divinity, to convince people to give their allegiance and their worship to him. But it doesn't stop there. Uh, many scholars have pointed out the, the, what they call the unholy trinity that's apparent between the dragon and the two beasts here in Revelation 12 and 13. This is no coincidence. The, the dragon gave his authority to the first beast, just as the father gave his authority to the son. And the second beast draws people to worship the first beast, just as the spirit points people to worship Christ and exalts Christ. And not only that, but in verse 3, we learn that the the first beast even imitates Jesus' death and resurrection 
suffering an apparently mortal wound only to be revived so that the whole world, those who dwell on the earth, they marvel at the first beast. And then in verse 13, the second beast mimics the Holy Spirit by performing signs and wonders to deceive people into worshiping the first beast. So there's almost this this mimicking, this mockery of the triune God by Satan. What Revelation 13 reveals to us is that Satan wants to take God's place and he wants to do whatever he can to draw people away from worshiping God because he hates God. From Genesis to Revelation, Satan has not changed. He started in the garden and he's still at it today. There's a real war going on and Satan is pulling out all of the stops to draw people, including you, away from worshiping the one true God. The main point of the sermon this morning is that Satan uses persecution and deception to demand worship, but those who trust and follow the Lamb will endure. Satan uses persecution and deception to demand worship, but those who trust and follow the Lamb will endure. Because Satan is not worthy of worship, he has to try to deceive people and, and use persecution to coerce people into worshiping him. And he carries out this deception and persecution through the first and the second beasts. And so I want to spend time this morning unpacking this so that we can understand how Satan wages war and how God helps us to endure. We'll look at what are the first and the second beasts. And then we're going to finish by contrasting Satan with the one true God who is actually worthy of our worship and does not need to deceive or intimidate anyone into worshiping him. So let's... Walk through the passage. Now, some, some have made the claim that the first beast represents the Roman emperor Nero, uh, but the evidence in the text strongly suggests, in my opinion, that it is representative of authoritarian empires in general. Revelation 13 is drawn from Daniel chapter 7. There's a lot of Daniel chapter 7 here in Revelation 13. And in Daniel 7, Daniel saw four beasts, the first of which resembled a lion, the second a bear, and the third a leopard. Sound familiar from what we just read? And the fourth beast that Daniel saw, he said it was exceedingly terrifying, and it had ten horns. And Daniel 7 goes on to say that this fourth beast will speak words against the Most High, and he will wear out the saints of the Most High. This closely resembles the beast in Revelation 13. And when you take into account that the description of the beast in Revelation 13 is a combination of the first three beasts in Daniel chapter 7, most scholars agree that the beast in Revelation 13 is the fulfillment of the prophecy of the fourth beast in Daniel. In other words, the beast here in Revelation 13 is the fourth beast from Daniel chapter 7. And it's explained to Daniel that these beasts represent kings or kingdoms. So the beast in Revelation 13 is symbolic for a kingdom that wages war on the saints and blasphemes God, just like Daniel 7 prophesied. And this beast finds its immediate fulfillment in the Roman Empire, which was the authoritarian empire that ruled the world when John wrote But the beast does not just represent Rome. As G.K. Beale writes, the the evil spirit behind Rome will also dominate other world powers which follow it. 
So it's best to understand the first beast as representing all wicked authoritarian empires that demand allegiance. And when we talk about empires, I want to be clear, we're not just talking about governments passing laws, but we're also talking about culture. After all, kingdoms and empires are made up of citizens, of people, which make up these nations. So what is the first beast doing? Well, the beast, empowered by the dragon, demands the worship and the allegiance that rightly belongs to God. And this power perverts God's original intention for the state. Romans 13 teaches us that God has instituted governing authorities to carry out His justice. But these dragon-inspired rulers corrupt God's good design. And they use their God-given authority to oppose God and to pervert justice rather than to uphold it. The beast speaks proud and blasphemous words, exalting itself as divine. And it demands that people give it absolute allegiance and worship rather than giving their allegiance and their worship to God. And we're told in Revelation 13 that those who dwell on the earth, remember that's a phrase that refers to unbelievers, those who dwell on the earth blindly worship the beast. In fact, verse 8 says that everyone whose name is not written in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain will worship the beast. In verse 4, we, we read that they marvel at the beast as they follow it, instead of marveling at God. They give worship to the beast that rightly belongs to God. They, they call out, who is like the beast? And who can fight against it? This, this, this passage, uh, this echoes many passages in the Old Testament that are rightly directed towards God. Like Psalm 113, 5 and 6 which says, Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? But instead, people are taking praise that's meant for the one true God and directing it towards the beast. Because people are dead in their sin, and they follow the prince of the power of the air, they blindly give this worship to the beast. And those who don't give this worship and allegiance to the beast experience the beast's wrath. Verse 7 says that the beast was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. So the dragon and the beast will try to use persecution to intimidate Christians into compromise, into abandoning faithfulness to the one true God. In the Roman Empire, when John wrote, most major cities had a temple dedicated to emperor worship by the end of the first century. Emperor worship was expected and even demanded, depending on where you lived. And participation in emperor worship was how citizens demonstrated their loyalty to Caesar and to the Roman Empire. And so naturally, faithful Christians refused to participate in this idolatrous practice, and they suffered greatly for it. John himself was exiled to Patmos. That's where he was writing from. And many others were martyred or imprisoned. And the same demonic spirit that inspired Rome is at work throughout history and throughout various parts of the world today. Chinese Christians reading in China reading Revelation 13 today would immediately think of the Chinese Communist Party, which demands absolute allegiance above everything else. The Taliban in Afghanistan harshly persecute Christians who do not toe the line of their God, Allah, Sharia law. 
And Revelation 13 suggests that Christians can expect more of the same because the same spirit that was the same demonic spirit of the beast that was behind the Roman Empire, crushing and persecuting Christians, is behind every other totalitarian regime seeking to wage war on the saints. Now, we live in a time and a place where we enjoy unusual freedom and security. And while we don't know what the future holds, the norm throughout church history has been suffering for the church. And not only is that the norm throughout history, but it's the expectation that we have in Scripture. And just observing recent developments, it would not be surprising if we face a drastic increase in persecution in our lifetime. We're seeing right now increased government encroachment on the church, even in places like Canada. Those of you that don't know, my wife and I were in Canada for four and a half years. We planted a church there. We have very close friends there. I was just speaking with a couple of the pastors of the church that we planted up there recently, and they were sharing with me how the government is seeking to restrict them from being able to gather for worship. So we shouldn't be surprised if and when fiery trials come upon us to test us. And additionally, while we don't face state-sanctioned persecution here in America, we do face social pressure to compromise in our culture. There is certainly pressure from the culture at large. And if we're honest, for many professing Christians, that's all Satan needs to do, right? He doesn't even need to wield Caesar's sword. He just needs to threaten social rejection, and that's plenty to keep a lot of Christians' mouths shut, isn't it? Whether it's threats of imprisonment and death or social pressure, Revelation 13 is written to help encourage us to endure. John reminds us that God is sovereign over the activity of the beast. Look again at at verse 9 and 10. John says, If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints. See, the, the temptation when we face things like this is to worry that God has abandoned us. But God's rule has not been surrendered. The beast is not winning. The beast only exercises authority under God's will. And what the beast intends for evil, God intends for good. Romans 8.17 says that if we suffer with Him, if we suffer with Christ, we will also be glorified with Him. So while the beast may unleash wrath against the church, the beast's time is ticking. Remember, John is drawing from Daniel chapter 7, which prophesies about the beast in Revelation 13. And Daniel 7 tells us what's going to happen. Let me read for you verse 21 and 22. Daniel says, As I looked, this horn made war with the saints, and prevailed over them until, until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. The beast does not have authority. God has authority. And we must remember that even if we're called upon to suffer under the heavy hand of the beast, under the heavy hand of an authoritarian government, or under a government that... that that perverts its God-given role to uphold justice. This passage is also instructive in helping us think through how Christians are called to relate to governing authorities that are oppressive or that pass unjust laws. How do we 
obey God's command in Romans 13 to submit to governing authorities in a situation like that where, where the government is misusing its authority. The temptation, I think, is to fight. That's the American spirit, right? Like we want to fight. That's our first thing we want to do. To treat the authorities as our enemy. But I want to remind you that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in, in Rome in Romans 12, 18. He said, if possible, so far as it depends on you, Live peaceably with all. And remember, Paul is writing this to people who were living under the totalitarian Roman Empire. These weren't people living in peacetime. He's writing this to people who are living under an oppressive government. And he's saying, do everything that you can to live at peace with all. Christians are not called to go and to pick fights. I think we can learn a lot from Daniel and his friends in Daniel chapter 1 to 6. It's no accident that Revelation draws from the book of Daniel so much. They were, if you don't know the story, they were taken into Babylonian captivity. They were exiled from their homes and they were conscripted into the king's service. They were made slaves to the royal court in Babylon. So what did they do? They didn't stage a revolt. They didn't try to overthrow the Babylonian government in a coup. Instead, they sought the welfare of the city, just like God had instructed His people to do through the prophet Jeremiah. They honored the king and the authorities, and they worked with excellence. But when forced to choose between allegiance to God and allegiance to the state, they remained faithful to God's word, even if it meant suffering or death. In Daniel chapter 3, Daniel's friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into the fiery furnace after refusing to bow down to the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had put up. In Daniel chapter 6, Daniel was told that he could not pray to anyone else but the king for a certain period of time. And what did Daniel do? He kept doing what he did every day. Three times a day, he went up in his room and he prayed in front of the window. And he was thrown into a den of lions, but God delivered him from the lion's mouths, and God delivered Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego from the fiery furnace. The totalitarian state is a beast. It constantly seeks to grab up more and more power, and it's driven by the spirit of the Antichrist. And as followers of Jesus, we're called to do all that we can, even in situations like that, to live peaceably and to seek to do good to those around us. And we're also called to be willing to suffer and to lay down even our own lives for the sake of Christ if we're forced to choose between allegiance to Jesus and allegiance to the state. Now, while persecution is certainly a possibility and a reality in many places, and it is something that, that Satan will try to use to intimidate people into abandoning the worship of the one true God, I believe that the greater danger for us in America right now is deception. And this is the specialty of the second beast. The second beast, we're told in verse 11, has two horns like a lamb, but speaks like a dragon. He appears aligned with Jesus, but his voice gives him away. Like an unholy spirit, it encourages people to worship the first beast using deceptive words and even signs and wonders. Look again at verse 13. It says that it performs great signs even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth. 
because the second beast claims to speak for God and imitates the lamb, this second beast represents religious authority that speaks contrary to God's word. This religious authority encourages people to compromise God's word and to join in with culture's idolatry. And because the second beast imitates the lamb, I think it's very likely that false teachers and false churches are particularly in view here. This deceptive spirit, which is the the spirit of the Antichrist, manifests itself throughout history, but Scripture tells us that there will be a final Antichrist figure. 1 John 4, verse 3 says this, it says, Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. So even with the Antichrist, there's an, an already and not yet aspect. Aspect. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3 and 4 tells us about the man of lawlessness who will come at the end of history claiming to be God. But Jesus also warns us in Matthew 24, 24 that many Antichrists will come. He says this, he says, There shall arise false Christs and false prophets who will perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. So as 1 John chapter 4 said, the spirit of the Antichrist is in the world already, working through false Christs and false prophets who speak deceptive words, but they appear to be aligned with the Lamb. The voice of the second beast is the voice of the dragon, Satan, the ancient serpent. And his voice has not changed since he's been in the garden. Remember what Satan did with Adam and Eve? Did God really say? Is this what God really said? Are you sure this is what God's word says? He cast doubt into their minds about what God said. Or, or how about this? You will not surely die. This sin isn't going to kill you. It's not that harmful. Or you can be just like God. You'll love this. It's going to be good for you. It's going to make your life better. You're going to be wise just like God. Satan wants to deceive people into the spiritual adultery of joining in with the idolatry of the world. He gives himself away by opening up his mouth. The way to distinguish the voice of the second beast is to hold it up to God's word. The standard of truth by which we measure everything is the Word of God, not signs and wonders or clever speech. There are many deceptive teachers out there at our fingertips ready to tell people whatever their itching ears want to hear. And with YouTube and social media, they have a bigger reach than ever before. That's why it's important to exercise discernment and to know God's Word. We do not measure the legitimacy of of a teacher's ministry by how many followers they have or by how passionately they preach or by how many people their ministry says has gotten saved and baptized or by how many signs and wonders they claim to be performing. But, But Jared, they're verified signs. Yes, and the second beast also performs real signs and wonders, but he's still a liar. We measure whether someone is speaking the truth by holding it up against God's Word. Galatians 1.8, the Apostle Paul says, he writes to the church in Galatia, he says, if even we or an angel from heaven 
should come down and preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preached, let him be accursed. Like, so even if you have this amazing visitation from an angel from heaven come down and say, here's the true gospel, if it's not, if it doesn't align with this gospel, it's a lie. Hello, Joseph Smith. Sorry, I'm going to throw that. If any of you, any of you know Mormon doctrine, Joseph Smith claimed to get his revelation from an angel from heaven that came down, down gave him a different gospel. Guess what? It's a false gospel. It doesn't matter. This is one of the many reasons that we preach expositionally through books of the Bible here at Pillar DC. Because it doesn't really matter very much what I have to say. What's important is what has God said. That's why we preach from the Scriptures. And we exposit the Scriptures and then do our best to help you apply the Scriptures to your life. I don't sit up here and pontificate about all of my opinions about what's going on in the world. We want you to know what God has said. Because God's Word is the standard of truth for us. I hope that you guys are hearing me because there is no shortage of false teaching out there all over the internet, all over the place. All sorts of people presenting themselves as being in alignment with the Lamb. They have the appearance of the Lamb, but they speak like the dragon because they twist the Word of God. And we need to know the Scriptures. We need to know the Word of God so that we can sniff it out. Do you know your Bible? Are you able to distinguish between faithful teaching and deceptive teaching? I want to encourage you to devote yourself to reading God's Word so that you can. We have Bible reading plans on the info table. Uh, so on your way out this morning, pick one of those up and take it home. And that way you've got a plan if you don't know where to start. I also want to encourage you to read the Bible in community with other believers. Sometimes, you know, I've heard Christians say, well, how do I know if I'm interpreting the Bible correctly? Like when I read it, how do I know what it means? Well, that's why we read Scripture in community together. By being, it's why we're, we, we get into discipleship relationships with more mature believers who can help us read our Bibles well. There's plenty of opportunities to do that within the life of the church. We have small groups that meet on the second and fourth weeks throughout the city. You can study the scriptures together with other believers. If you're not in a, in a discipleship relationship, we'd love to talk to you about that. We can help get you connected with someone who can help disciple you and begin to, to teach you how to read the Word of God and to walk you through the scriptures if you want to know more about that, come and talk to me. Come talk to Doug, Chad, Thomas, one of the, the pastors. We'd love to get you plugged in. But don't just, if you're not in the Word of God, don't just continue the status quo. Know the Scriptures. There is a real enemy out there who's seeking to steal, kill, and destroy, and deception is one of his primary tools that he uses. <clears throat> and the last part of chapter 13 shows how the first and the second beast work together. The second beast promotes the worship of the state, of the first beast. And it uses deception to deceive people into worshiping the image of the beast. So what does this look like in practical terms? Remember I said that the first beast isn't just, just the government. Isn't just laws that the government's passing. It's, it's culture. So oftentimes what the, the, what the second beast is going to do is he, he's going to tempt Christians and try to deceive Christians into compromising with the culture, with the world, and try to convince Christians to give their allegiance to the things that culture is giving its allegiance to. It's going to try to, to deceive Christians into turning away from faithfulness to God and faithfulness to His Word and to compromise with, on God's Word. 
But when deception doesn't work, the second beast joins hands with the first beast by using force and intimidation to coerce worship. We read in chapter 13 that many who do not worship the beast are slain, and those who don't receive the mark of the beast are not allowed to buy or sell. Uh, the point of the mark of the beast is not to speculate about whether it's a, a chip, a microchip, or a vaccine, or any nonsense like that. That's not the purpose. The mark of the beast symbolizes allegiance to the beast. It's a way for the governing authorities to keep tabs on who is loyal and allegiant to the beast. But what verse 18 makes clear is that those who give their allegiance to the beast are giving their allegiance to a mere man. Verse 18 says, Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. The number 777 represents perfection, but 666 is the number of man. And those who give their allegiance to the beast are worshiping a human kingdom. Although the beast tries to present himself as divine and worthy of worship, Revelation 13, 18 makes clear this is a human kingdom that people are giving their allegiance to that is not worthy of your worship. Those who receive the mark of the beast are set in contrast against those who belong to the Lamb. Look at chapter 14 with me. John says, And then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his Father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. So those who belong to the Lamb have His name and His Father's name on their foreheads. Satan wants worship. And he uses persecution and deception to try to get people to worship him because that's the only way he can get it. But God, on the other hand, is actually worthy of worship. And his tools are grace and truth, not persecution and deception. Whereas the beast made haughty boasts and uttered blasphemies to exalt itself, ironically, the true Lamb of God humbled himself. He did not need to posture to exalt himself with haughty boasts. The lamb demonstrated his greatness and his love and his worthiness of worship by laying down his life in humility and then taking it up again in power. This is how God woos his people to worship him and to adore him. He so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him might have eternal life. Jesus, the Lamb of God, died on the cross to take the punishment for our sin. On the cross, God demonstrated His love for us. And three days later, Jesus rose from the dead and He reigns in heaven, sovereign over everything. And He stands on Mount Zion and those who worship Him, worship Him with joy and gladness in the new creation. And the new song that that we sing, that the, that the saints sing is a song of deliverance, a song of having been delivered from this present evil age and from following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons 
of disobedience. This, this song celebrates God's triumph over sin through the blood of the Lamb. By faith in Jesus, we share in that triumph. And Revelation 14 tells us only those redeemed by the Lamb can sing this song of deliverance. No one else can learn it or sing it. Earlier this week, Thomas and I were talking about this passage, and he pointed out how you really do have a contrast of worship services in Revelation 13 and 14. The worship service of the beast in Revelation 13 is vile and fearful and deceptive and dark. And Satan has nothing to offer us. He just makes demands of us. He uses deception and intimidation to try to coerce worship. But the worship service of the Lamb in chapter 14 is glorious and joyful and pure. We have nothing to offer the Lamb, but He gives us everything as a free gift. Do you see the contrast? Do you see the difference? There's no doubt who is actually worthy of our worship. There's no doubt in my mind who I want to give my worship and my allegiance to. Because we can worship the Lamb in freedom and in truth. Because we love Him because He first loved us. We respond, we respond in worship, we respond to the grace that we've been shown from the Lamb. We don't worship Him in servile fear. So who are you serving this morning? Whose voice are you listening to? Don't leave here without being certain that the name of the Lamb and of His Father are on your forehead, that you are marked, that you are sealed. Are you trusting in Jesus as your King? We get a further description of what these people who belong to the Lamb are like in verses 4 and 5. Here's how you can know if you are trusting in Jesus. John says, It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed for mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth, no lie was found because they are blameless. Those who belong to the Lamb do not commit spiritual adultery with other gods. That's the meaning of they have not defiled themselves with women. Obviously, you do not need to be celibate to belong to the Lamb. That's not the purpose of that passage. The point is that those who belong to the Lamb don't compromise by participating in the worship of worldly things. Are you wholeheartedly devoted to the Lamb? Is Jesus your treasure? We also read that those who belong to the Lamb follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Christians do what the Lamb does. We walk in obedience to God's Word. We walk in love just as Jesus does. To follow the Lamb is to live like the Lamb. It's costly to follow Jesus. In Luke 9, a man came to Jesus and said, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus responded, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay His head. In other words, it won't be comfortable. Living like Jesus means living a life of humble service. It's a laid down life. The Lamb did not come to the earth to live in luxury or to be served. The Lamb walked the road to Calvary, and following Him means we will as well. 
When the Lamb leads us into suffering for the sake of the gospel, Christians go knowing that great is our reward in heaven. When the Lamb leads us into humbly serving people around us who can't repay us, we go knowing that it is more blessed to give and to receive. When the Lamb leads us to turn the other cheek when our spouse or coworker says something hurtful, we follow Him knowing that love covers a multitude of sins. That's what it looks like to follow the Lamb wherever He goes. This is the fruit of the life of one who listens to and follows the Lamb. These are the ones who will dwell with Him in eternal joy in the new creation when His kingdom is established on earth as it is in heaven. As we close, I'm asked the worship team to come up. And we're going to get ready to close out our time. The main point of the message this morning has been that Satan uses persecution and deception to demand worship, but those who trust and follow the Lamb will endure. Friends, there is no one but King Jesus who is worthy of your worship. If you have not surrendered your life to Him, if you are not serving Him as your King, then what Scripture tells us is that whether you're aware of it or not, right now you are serving the dragon as your king. You are serving the prince of the power of the air. You are being captured by him to do his will. And I want to urge you and encourage you this morning to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus to be saved and surrender to him as your king. He is a good and righteous king. He demonstrated his love for you on the cross even while you were still a sinner. And He alone is worthy of your worship and your praise. Please, please, don't put this off. If you know that God is drawing you this morning, don't wait. Make the decision today to surrender your life to Jesus. And if you do that, come and talk to somebody about it because it's just the beginning of a a lifetime of following Jesus. And we want to help you do that in community. And we'd love to do that. So please come and talk to us afterwards. And if you are a Christian here in this room this morning, please Remember and be encouraged that God is sovereign. No matter what we're called to go through, no matter what suffering we're called to walk through, God is sovereign over it and there is an expiration date. Soon and very soon, King Jesus is coming to be glorified and to establish his kingdom on earth. So let's follow the lamb wherever he goes and let's hold fast to his word and let's endure, church. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let me pray and then we're going to sing. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for demonstrating your love for us. By dying for us on the cross, Jesus, we praise and worship you as the lamb who was slain and who is alive forevermore. Help us to faithfully abstain from from spiritual adultery by getting tangled up in the things of this world and help us to follow you wherever you go, Jesus. We love you. We pray this in your name. Amen.